Happy New Year to all of you. My name's Jim Kluth. I'm director of AEC here at Berean Community Church, and I've got a huge amount of family over there with me this morning. So uh, my wife, Tara, is on the end, and then uh, my brother-in-law, Adam, is right next to her, and then uh, three, three of my own children and a stowaway. So anyway, I hope we'll have a great time studying and thinking together this morning. I need to do a couple of announcements first. So let's start off with that there is no children's church today, so do not send your four-year-old through first grader away from the sanctuary right now because nobody will be supervising them. So little ones, I'm the best you get. Um, And I also want to tell you that if you're between the ages of zero and eighth grade, and you listen for the nugget in the sermon this morning, and you tell me what it is, uh, you can come and collect a Ghirardelli chocolate square. These are milk chocolate, the gingerbread cookie with other natural flavors, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy that. So here's the nugget. I will be bringing up one Greek word through the message this morning. There will be one Greek word that gets repeated a couple of times. If you can tell me what the Greek word was at the end of the service then you too can share in the Ghirardelli chocolate. All right. Um, high schoolers, you're probably feeling kind of sad right now, and college students, because you're like, you didn't include me in that. But we are including you in the AECs for this upcoming uh, adult Sunday school cycle. So adult Sunday schools start next week, 9 a.m., and it's going to be great. So here's, here's what I need you to know for the beginning, 9 a.m., 9 a.m. next week, Sunday, we're going to all be in here for just a little while, and you're going to grill me because the elder boards asked me to join the elder board coming up here, and so this is your opportunity to hear my testimony and uh, to ask questions as you desire, and uh, then once we're done with that, then we're going to split into the men's class, which is spiritual leadership, And we're going to split into the women's class, which is Faith Words and led by Carrie Brand. And so those are open to ninth graders, high school students on up. And I hope that I hope that every one of you takes advantage of this. I would just love to see everybody in an AEC of some kind. So with that, we need to get into the message because 2022 is over and 2023 is staring us in the face. And I don't know what your experience of 2022 was. You probably got some happy memories. You probably got some uh, less than happy memories from the year that we just finished. Uh, But it was a whole year. It was 365.25 days. It was four seasons, or three, if you're John Downer who claims that we don't get summer in Minnesota. He says it's just winter and then spring and then fall and then straight back to winter. So, but for good or for ill, 2022, it's over. And now we're standing at the doorway of 2023, peering in, not sure what will happen, what our lives will look like during this calendar year. And if you're like me, you're probably wanting a closer walk with the Lord in 2023. You're looking for a deeper connection with him, and you're wondering what would make that possible, or even if it would be possible. And this whole question reminds me of what we would sometimes do 
back in the 1970s and 1980s when we were watching television, right? You remember, back in the 70s and 80s, most people had the roof antenna, but some people had the little rabbit ears right on top of the TV. Raise your hand if you remember the rabbit ears. Yeah, now we've just divided you into the older and the younger. Um, and so what you would do, what, what would happen, young people, is if you wanted to get a station, let's say you wanted to watch the news on Channel 5, so you turn to Channel 5, and then you'd adjust the rabbit ears, which sat right on top of the television, to the exact right angle so that you could get the best reception for Channel 5. And then if you wanted to switch to Channel 9 news with Rod Grams and Heather Harden at 9 p.m., then you would you'd switch the rabbit ears a little bit that way and you'd get the best possible reception. And that's kind of what we need to do this morning. We need to make sure that we're getting the best possible reception from the Lord during 2023. We need to recalibrate a little bit. We need to reset things at the beginning of this year. And so I want to encourage you to go to Hebrews Chapter 12, that's what we're going to use to recalibrate our hearts this morning. So if you have your Bible, how, in whatever form you may have it, um, we're turning to Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart." In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, we thank you for providing this word for us. We thank you that it is as true today as it was the moment that it left the pen of the writer of Hebrews. We ask that you use this word in our lives to make us more faithful to you and to help us carry out the ministry that you have in store for us in 2023. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray it. Amen. So, this passage begins with a therefore. And the therefore is taking us back to the great cloud of witnesses. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us do these things. And it's clear that this is going back to chapter 11, the faith hall of fame. And in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews is addressing Jewish converts to Christianity. And these Jewish converts we're experiencing persecution on probably a pretty impressive level. And so they were asking the question, wouldn't it be fine if we just went back to doing things the old way? We could go, you know, we could, we could do uh, the temple worship and we could uh, get together with the rabbi and uh, experience all of those things. Wouldn't that be fine? We just, this Jesus thing, it's getting us into a lot of trouble. It's getting us a lot of negative attention in the culture. And so couldn't, 
we just go back to doing it the old way? And the writer of Hebrews hits them with a resounding no. All through chapter 11, he reminds his readers that men and women who live by faith never had it easy. Think about Abraham, a generally successful guy living in Ur of the Chaldees around 2000 BC. And in the middle of a polytheistic culture where the moon god was pretty popular, the true god comes to him and suggests that Abraham take himself, his wife, his servants, his cattle, and everything, and move to the land of Canaan, which in 2000 BC was kind of uh, like a wild land, like uncivilized and nothing developed there at all. It would be kind of like if God came to you and asked you to move to southern Iowa or something like that, or heaven forbid, even Nebraska. So, um, but by faith, Abraham does it, continues trusting in God, and becomes the father of the entire Jewish nation and receives the messianic promise that all nations will be blessed through him. And Hebrews 11 also includes Moses. Moses, who gets commissioned to lead the entire nation of Israel out of slavery. And we're talking about roughly 2 million people who have never been anywhere else in their entire lives. So his job is to take two million people who have been slaves to the Egyptians the whole time over the objections of the Egyptians and get them out of Egypt and to the promised land. And by faith, he does it. And by faith, he's able to work miracles that God does through him. And Abraham and Moses are just the standouts in the huge list of Old Testament saints which is all the writer of the Hebrews had available. But we have so much more. We have the apostles and the church fathers and the reformers and the great missionaries of history. We have Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and Hudson Taylor and George Whitfield, Susanna Wesley and Amy Carmichael, all cheering us on. But for so many of us, the cloud of witnesses comes way closer to home. I think of both of my parents who grew up in homes marked by alcohol abuse. And by faith, they left their homes of origins and they went into the teaching ministry. And by faith, they established a home together that was not marked by alcohol abuse. And they spent years and years of their lives leading children to Jesus Christ. <laughs> I remember during my teen years, I would come home late, and by that point in their lives, my dad was a second shift worker, and so he would get home at about 11.30, and I'd come in at midnight, and I'd see him at his desk with his Bible open, night after night. And i got to tell you, parents, that makes an impact when your children see you investing time in the Word of God, they know that what you believe is really real, that you are actually committed to this thing that you say that you're committed to. And I knew, I watched my dad, and I knew that there was nothing more important to him than his walk with the Lord. And he's been gone about eight years now, but he is still part of my cloud of witnesses. And the cloud of witnesses is not just there to make us feel better. 
But it's to call us to action. See, the lives of the saints are calling us to throw off the weights, the hindrances, the encumbrances that could rob us of the joy that we have in Christ and the fruitfulness that he desires for us. Think about it this way. I took up running about five years ago. When I go running, I get rid of all the excess stuff. No more clothing than necessary. The correct running shoes, no wallet, no phone. Why? Because I don't want to be weighted down with all that stuff. I don't want a cell phone banging around in my pocket, slowing me down. And I don't want to get tangled up in long pants. And for goodness sake, I don't want to fall because at my age, that could be disastrous. So I do everything I can to run efficiently. But this physical running is just a picture of our spiritual running. And the new year is a great time to evaluate how am I doing at running the marathon of life in Jesus Christ? What kinds of things are weighing me down? You may have regrets, opportunities you didn't pursue, words you didn't say, godly deeds you didn't perform. And if that's your story, you need to let those things go. Because we all have them. We all have things that we wish we could do over. And if you're repentant, Scripture is clear that the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing you from all sin. All sin. Even the ones that you really, really wish you could have back. Probably especially those. You might also have pursuits in your life that are kind of like carrying a suitcase when you're trying to run. Can you imagine that? If you were to get out on the track, we're going to try and get a good time for the 400, and you're just going to tote this thing around with you. We've got things that are weighing us down that are encumbrances. And at this moment, there's a type of preacher who would tell you that uh, you need to need to get all the secular things out of your life, give up those secular things. Maybe you like to paint landscapes, or maybe you like to go bowling with the boys, or whatever that happens to be. But that misses the point. See, once you've come to faith in Christ, there's no such thing as secular activity because your entire life is to be an offering of praise to God. That's the point of Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the question is not sacred or secular. The question is worthwhile or not worthwhile. See, that bowling league, God might be using that to provide you some necessary recreation. Or God might be using that to open your eyes to the brokenness in the lives of your friends who don't yet know Christ. And so in that moment when they experience a worldview-shattering crisis, 
you will be there to speak into their lives and to bring them the hope and the good news of Jesus Christ. Or that bowling league might be a poor use of your time. It's your job to discern that. And as Paul taught us, if we're in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. And so we can do that discerning. So in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the authority of the word of God, we're going to free ourselves from the things that trip us up and are trying to snare us and make us ineffective in bearing fruit that will last. We're going to be aware that sin so easily entangles and be on the alert for the many kind of sins that are trying to own us. And the writer tells us how to do that in the next verse. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us gaze continually on Jesus. Let us look intentionally at Jesus. For me, the nearest image to this comes with night driving. So our family lives a little ways out of town. We're about four miles east of Rochester. And sometimes if I'm coming home in the dark, I'll be facing oncoming traffic that has their brights on. And you know, if you look right into the brights, that's not good for your driving. So I pick the white line on the right edge of the road, and I look over there as I'm coming past somebody with their brights on, and I stay on the road. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. I don't want to be blinded by that oncoming vehicle, and so I make sure that I need to fix my eyes on Christ. But of course the writer of Hebrews isn't telling us to stare at a picture of Jesus. He's asking us to fix our spiritual eyes on Christ. So how do we do that? Well, first, we have to recognize the wonder of who he is. According to this verse, he's the author of our faith. He was begotten by the Father in eternity past. And so John can tell us in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in 1.3, John will tell us that nothing in all creation was made except that this Word, the Logos, this living Word, was involved in making it. And the translation word doesn't bring across the rich flavor of everything that's happening in John chapter 1. But we can understand a couple of things. First, Jesus is exactly the same substance as the Father. And second, Jesus is exactly what the Father wanted to say to us. That's the meaning of John 1.14. The word, the logos, the statement, the message, the rational principle undergirding the whole universe, the Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In Jesus, the triune God communicated exactly what he wanted to say to us. So we can fix our eyes on Jesus by recognizing that he's the only human who's also God. But there's more. We can also fix our eyes on Jesus by paying attention to what he did during his time on earth. No one in the whole history of the world has said things that were so simple that you can teach them to a child, and yet so profound that entire libraries of commentaries have been written on them. 
to help people understand what was said. I thought I'd bring just a few for you this morning. Systematic Theology by Louis Burkhoff from the late 1930s. Bible Doctrine, two volumes by Wayne Grudem. And this one's a monster. The Doctrine of the Christian Life by John M. Frame. Nathan, have you read this one? Not yet. Me neither. Um, a, theolo- a Theology of Lordship. It is huge. It's a massive, massive book. And so the smartest, most faithful guys in the world, they're writing volumes like this, while you could be teaching young people in Sunday school, and they can get the truths of Christianity that will transform their hearts as well. Because Jesus gives us uncomplicated stories like, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, or a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. And from Jesus, we get difficult teachings like, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's from a discourse in John chapter 6, where at the end of the discourse, a bunch of people who had been following him decided that they didn't want to follow him anymore. And from Jesus, we get a depth of moral instruction that makes our attempts at righteous living seem absolutely comical. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see a man deeply committed to including the outcast, binding up the brokenhearted, and proclaiming the kingdom of God to ordinary people like you and me. And conversely, to the powerful, to the pretentious, to the self-absorbed. Jesus was a constant source of irritation, so provocative and so annoying that they decided to kill him to shut him up. That's the story of the crucifixion from a human perspective. But the writer of Hebrews tells us the other side, the divine purpose, quoting, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. So fixing our eyes on Jesus also means pondering the crucifixion and the attitude that Jesus brought to it. And it's clear from the Gospels that Jesus was expecting to be killed by the Jewish leaders since he predicted his death and his resurrection numerous times. But let's be honest. Nobody, not even Jesus, is excited about being crucified at the hands of the Romans. The Gospels record his misery the great drops of blood that he sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knelt in prayer asking God if he really had to go through with it. But he knew that God's plan was clear, that in his death, life would be available to everybody. Did you notice the phrase for the joy set before him? What was the joy set before him? I like to argue that it was multifaceted. There were many joys set before Jesus as he endured the cross. He experienced joy because he was carrying out the Father's will. He experienced joy in knowing that his obedience would bring immense glory to God. He experienced joy because on the cross, he won the complete victory over sin and Satan and death. He experienced joy knowing that the broken creation would be made whole again. Paul refers to this in Romans 8.22, where he writes, We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. 
And Jesus knew that his suffering would ultimately make everything new and fulfill God's great promise in Ezekiel 37, 27, where God says, My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. What about you? What's the joy set before you in 2023? What opportunities will you have to declare and to demonstrate that your joy is in Jesus? Now, I don't think that you'll have to die on a cross, but you will be called to die to self over and over. And the paradox of the Christian life is found right here. As we choose to die to self, we experience joy and fulfillment that we never would have experienced had we chosen the path of self-gratification. A great place to learn how to die to self is through serving, and particularly in the context of serving in the local body. And I want to challenge you to consider as we enter 2023, how will you serve Jesus' church this year? Where will you give of yourself to make sure that this church is a place that pursues God, proclaims Christ, and prepares people? See, I know for a fact that there are ministry openings here at Berean Community Church, and I don't mean openings in the sense of, well, I think we could probably find something for you to do if we could search around hard enough. I'm saying that there are ministry openings in the sense that There's ministry going undone. There are people's needs that are unmet because we are not stepping forward and doing the things that we need to do in this body. Now you might say, well, I didn't know that. I don't don't really know how to plug in or where I can be used. I would say, talk to Nathan. Talk to Neil. Talk to Kathy Coleman in the office. Talk to one of the elders They've got their finger on the pulse of this body. They know where the needs are, and they can help you figure out how your gifts fit with the needs that exist. Another aspect of the joy set before you is in the area of financial giving. See, when we honor the Lord with our first fruits, we are declaring to him in a very tangible way that he is our joy. Jesus was clear when he said, You can't serve both God and money. So giving offers a window into your heart and honestly how committed you are to God's kingdom. Here at Berean, we are all in this together. When you give each week, you're doing a number of things, but I want to say that most importantly, when you give, you're taking a hold of your heart and you're teaching it where your treasure is. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as we learn to get the right treasure in focus, then our hearts get in the right place. And you're helping to meet the regular expenses of this local body during challenging financial times. And you're replacing worn-out equipment and aging facilities, and you're preparing for the future of Berean. And you're making it possible for missionaries to continue to proclaim the life-saving message of Jesus Christ in various places all around the globe. You're sending Justin and Jamie Long to Thailand, where they're going to have a gospel impact in a land where the number of Christians is absolutely minuscule. 
You're making investments in the kingdom that will bear fruit now and through eternity. And it's worth the sacrifice. Hear me say it. It's worth the sacrifice of the toy that you will not buy or the experience that you will not have because you gave a little bit more on the front end. And Jesus promised that he would repay you a hundred times over. It's in Mark chapter 10. Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus got your back. I think sometimes as believers, we imagine that when we face difficulty, we are sometimes outside of God's will. I think a lot of times we'd prefer the Joel Osteen view of Christian life, right? We sign up on God's team and then he propels us to success the same way that the rocket propels the shuttle in outer space. But success in that way is not the picture that we find in the scriptures. That's not the view of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, where they tell the brothers and sisters, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's not the view of Peter in 1 Peter, who spends his whole epistle emphasizing the fact that suffering is intertwined with the Christian life. In 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, he writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And it's not the view of the writer of Hebrews who says in chapter 12, verse 5, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. He goes on to equate hardship with discipline, saying that we ought to view our sufferings as discipline from a good father who wants the best for us. And I think that in many ways, parents in our culture have lost the idea of discipline, and that affects us even here in the church. I was having a conversation with one of my sons recently, a son who may have behaved disrespectfully toward me not long before said conversation. And I told him, so you may think that I'm unreasonable for expecting you to treat me respectfully, but even if you don't agree, let me tell you, if you had tried on your grandfather what you tried on me, there would be a shallow grave in the backyard with one occupant. Now, of course I'm kidding. My parents weren't quite that severe. And this passage deals with discipline far more than And what's the goal of discipline? To gain an audience. You discipline a child because you want him or her to hear and understand and receive the message that you're giving them. You want them to remember what you said. And in short, God wants your attention because he has things that he wants to address in your life so that you can enjoy him and abide more fully in him and he can express his life and his character through you. That's the goal. And as we face confusing or discouraging circumstances, 
even knowing that God uses them to refine us and grow us, it would be easy to lose heart. I don't have to tell you that the gap between a biblical Christian worldview and the worldview of our culture is steadily widening. For those of us who can remember a culture where the basics of Christian morality were essentially a given, it can be truly disheartening. But then the realization bursts over us. Most of the New Testament was written to people who had no living, written to people living in cultures that had no knowledge of Jesus Christ and no concept of living godly lives. But at no point do the biblical writers encourage them to just roll over and fit in while everybody else is doing whatever they're doing. It's just the opposite. The New Testament constantly encourages us to live distinctively Christian lives, regardless of the short-term consequences. And that's why Paul can say to the Galatians, let us not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Or to the Corinthians, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's why the writer of Hebrews exhorts us to think about the, what the corrupt religious leaders did to Jesus. If the author and finisher of our faith suffered persecution, we can too. We know from Scripture that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know that all of God's promises are yes in Christ. So the question for 2023 is, what will you do with the grace that God has poured out so generously on you? What is the joy set before you? And what is God calling you to do to experience it? Will you choose to fix your eyes on Jesus every single day? Will you choose to throw off the encumbrances and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for you? Will you choose to strengthen this local body by investing your time and your resources here? Will you choose to see hardship as discipline from a loving Heavenly Father? And will you know that He has a good plan for you in 2023? Let's pray that God would carry out his will among us in 2023. Would you pray with me?